God's Word to us this morning is uh, from Hebrews chapter 2, and I'll read verses 1 through 9. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You may be seated. So yesterday, um, <clears throat> I was riding the car with Amanda, and I mentioned to her that I wanted to read back through the sermon for this morning, because I, I have a tendency that I, have, I try to write everything out and just kind of read from it. If not, I ramble, and that's not helpful for anybody. So I was telling her I wanted to read back through it, and I try to make it sound kind of as natural as possible, that it seems more like just we're talking with each other. And she was encouraging me. She's like, it does seem more natural if you feel like you're having a conversation with somebody instead of just kind of talking to a room. So I want to preemptively uh, apologize if I make contact with you. It's because I'm trying to trick my brain into having a conversation. So it's going to be really weird for that one person. Everybody else will see normal. So if you're that person, just soak it in, let it be, and we'll, we'll be fine. We'll get through it. So if you'll bow your heads, we'll pray real quick, and then we'll get started this morning. God, I pray that you uh, just remove me from up here. It's not my words that anybody needs to hear. It's your words. And just as much of a blessing as it's been to me over the last few weeks, to dig into Hebrews chapter 2, um, just use the things you brought to my mind, uh, let it be your words that are spoken, and um, anytime your words are what we hear, there's power and force behind them, and anytime they're the words of man, um, they fall on deaf ears, and they're worthless. So, Lord, we just look for your guidance and your wisdom and your words this morning. Amen. So Hebrews chapter 2 starts um, with a phrase, because of this, or therefore, so... With that in mind, we're going to actually do a little short recap over chapter 1 and reintroduce the things that Rodney had talked about over the last few weeks, like what he's covered. Uh, first, it's that Jesus is greater than the angels. Um, he, Rodney pointed this out over the last few weeks. It doesn't have the same impact on us today as it did for first century Jewish Christians. And the angels were messengers of God. They delivered the words of the Father to the children of Israel. They had a prominent place. Um, generally, when they show up in Scripture, there's fear and trembling and reverence and even sometimes people try to worship them because of their status and who they were and the magnificence that they carried with them. Uh, so they carried out the judgments of God on stories like Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, they brought good news to Hagar. They were the people's connection, again, to the Father. So the conclusion of chapter 1 
is that for all the greatness of these angels, for all their magnificence and glory, that's nothing compared to the glory of the Lord Jesus. Rodney read chapter, or read 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, as kind of a short summation of Hebrews 1. And so this morning, to start with Hebrews 2, I wanted to actually pick up there in 1 Peter and read that again just to kind of reset our minds and get us thinking about the magnificence of who Jesus is and how the author of Hebrews is magnifying him over the angels. It's also worth pointing out before we get started that chapter breaks and verse numbers were not added to Scripture until much, much later. And so while they're extremely helpful for us when we break down Scripture, um, sometimes, at least especially for me, they can, help, they can cause me to miss contextual keys of what's going on before. We start just in Hebrews 2 and we start reading from there. We miss the fact that Hebrews 1 is, is tied into in the beginning of, of Hebrews 2. So 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 says, As to the salvation, the prophet who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made cheerful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel, and to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. So I want to put something in your mind as we read the first four verses of chapter 2. The author of Hebrews is making application of the amazing doctrines from Hebrews 1. These first four verses are exhortations or arguments about our response to the preeminence of who Jesus is. These first four verses are a warning to the Christians. We should see these warnings of the author of Hebrews with this lens, that there are things worth, that there are things we're being urged toward and truths that when presented to us the last few weeks are the very things that angels longed upon to look. So let's not forsake the great message of Christ this morning as we dig into Hebrews 2. Starting in verse 1 in Hebrews 2. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every violation and act of disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God, also testifying with them both by signs and wonders, by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So verse 1 exhorts us to, we should hear these doctrines presented before us with deep concern and deep candor. Um, I actually like the last song we sang that talked about our hearts are prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God that we love. So the Hebrew Christians this letter is written to, and us, we should pay very close attention to the description of Christ that was presented before. Again, this letter is written to Christians, and this section is the first warning passage of Hebrews for those Christians. It's a call to be diligent in the faith and not to be tempted to return to the old covenant. The covenant they once knew, or to turn away under threat of persecution. It's a call to take hold of the faith delivered to them. While not to be tempted to return to Judaism, we may not, sorry, we are not always tempted to return to Judaism. Most of us didn't come from a Jewish background in this room. Um, but we're very much tempted to return to the lives we lived before. We're very much tempted to give in to social pressures and peer pressure to return back to the things uh, before. So it's a genuine warning to us. You may be in this room participating in the things of church, but not fully invested in the faith. It may be a tradition for you to come to church, or you may have just started a family and thought, I'm going to raise my kids around generally good people uh, with a good foundation behind them. Uh, and I think even today, like in the Midwest, uh, generally people assume that everybody is, goes to church in some aspect. We're all just part of still the culture, I think, in the part of the country we live in. So you may be enjoying the goodness of church community, maybe enjoying the goodness of a family group. Uh, and on the surface, you may check all the boxes. 
But something isn't right deep down in your soul. You don't see the importance of having a Savior. So this warning here in Hebrews 2 is to pay close attention to what's been taught about Christ in Hebrews 1. Uh, it may mean to repent and truly believe the things that you've professed and make Jesus the king of your life. You may be on the opposite side of that spectrum. You're a true believer, but the things of the world, the stresses of life, have dulled your sense of God's magnificence. You're just getting by. Discipleship has taken a hit. Um, as you get more and more busy, as life just piles things on top of you, before you know it, you can't remember the last time that you spent time reading the word, leading your family in prayer, or doing anything but just going through the motions of the Christian life. The truths of Christ have been pushed to the back burner of your own life. So this may be the wake-up call that you need to reinvigorate your soul and grasp hold of things of Jesus. And more than likely, you're somewhere in between these two extremes. What's important to take away is that this is a genuine warning to genuine believers to hold fast to what has been presented about Christ. Most of us have been part of the Christian community very long. We've heard about or we know somebody personally that's fallen away or become an apostate. And if we don't, by this point, sadly, we probably will before our life is over. The phrase, drift away, can also be translated as slip or to leak. So one metaphor I had read suggested the idea of like a barrel or a vessel that you pour liquid into. And then over time, the, the liquid will seep out of the seams and the cracks of the barrel. Um, and our minds are very much like this. Those things we don't attend to with our minds, we shouldn't expect to retain for very long. I think that's why I have such a hard time remembering people's names. Because they tell me their name, and it goes right through my head and out the other end. And I have no idea what their name is five minutes later. I can tell you where they work, how many kids they have. Couldn't tell you their name, saved my life. So we're called to embrace these truths in our hearts, retain them in our memory, and regulate our lives around them. And we're talking about something beyond just a simple knowledge of God or a simple affirmation of, yes, there's a God. In James 1, 19-25, uh, James emphasizes this point. He says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Reprove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So the author of Hebrews exhorts us to hold on to dearly the things of Christ. The things we've been taught over the last few weeks, those are the things that impact our lives the most, and those are the things we have to hold on dearly to. The fact of Christ's greatness. And in the next few verses, the author of Hebrews adds strong motives for that desperate hold we should have for Jesus. The messages of judgment that were delivered to Israel through the angels, when not heeded, they led to the wrath from the Lord. And this is a dreadful punishment, and if we do not do our duty and keep diligent in our care of our relationship with the Lord, the law presented by angels to the messengers of God held a steadfast and sure punishment for those who broke that law. In Galatians 3.19, Paul tells us, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So as we think about the punishment of the Old Testament lawbreakers and how much more punishment we endure by rejecting the gospel of Christ, if the Old Covenant breakers were punished for every transgression based on the amount of light that they had received in the Old Testament, how do we think we may escape the consequences of rejecting the New Covenant, rejecting the gospel delivered to us by the Lord himself? 
and then accompanied by the apostles. Oh, probably a week ago when I was studying Hebrews, going through this, I was listening. Uh, every morning I kind of start, I listen to the Bible as my morning reading um, while I'm doing things. And Hosea uh, was being read to me from the app. And chapter 5 just uh, kind of hit me and made me think of Hebrews 2 and this punishment that the Old Testament lawbreakers faced whenever they didn't uphold the things that God had called them to. So it's a little long, but I actually want to read Hosea chapter 5 just to give us a, a, a short little depiction of the kind of punishment and the kind of judgment that came on those in the Old Testament that did not follow the things of the Lord. So the prophet Hosea in chapter 5 describes this way. He says, here's this, you priests. Pay attention, you Israelites. Listen, royal house. This judgment is against you. You have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread on Tabor. The rebels are knee-deep in slaughter. I will discipline all of them. I know all about Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. Ephraim, you have now turned to prostitution. Israel is corrupt. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. The Israelites, even Ephraim, stumble in their sin. Judah also stumbles with them. When they go to the Lord, when they go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. They are unfaithful to the Lord. They give birth to illegitimate children. When they celebrate their new moon feasts, he will devour their fields. Sound the trumpet in Gibeah, the horn in Ramah. Raise the battle cry in beth Aven. Lead on, Benjamin. Ephraim will be laid waste on the day of reckoning among the tribes of Israel. I proclaim what is certain. Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. I will pour out my wrath on them like a flood of water. Ephraim is oppressed, trampled in judgment, intent on pursuing idols. I am like a moth to Ephraim, like rot in the people of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king for help. But he is not able to cure you, not able to heal your sores. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. Then I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. So we see here in Hosea that the, the punishment of the Lord is like a lion destroying its prey and dragging it off to a cave. So they are punished for rejecting a shadow of things to come. And so us, along with the Hebrew Christians written to in this chapter, this book, we stay in the light of what Christ has done. We stay in the full light of the gospel. So if their offense of rejection in the Old Testament for rejecting ceremonies and shadows of things to come was high, ours is indescribably higher when we reject the things of Christ. Now, as I was thinking about this idea of trying to escape the punishment of neglecting the salvation, again, it made me think about people we're likely to run into in this community. Uh, most people will meet in the Midwest, would check the Christian box on a survey. Many have traded the gospel of Christ for a false message that were meant to live mostly peaceful lives and that were generally good people. They may have heard the true gospel preached and probably have living in this part of the country where there's a church on every corner, but they haven't retained it, didn't transform their life, or they haven't started to be, t or they've been started to be tempted back into their old life, one of comfort and fitting in. This is a warning not only for those who persecute and attack the gospel, but it's also for those that didn't pay it much attention. They hold it in little regard. It's just part of the culture of, of where we're at, and they just kind of brush it away. Adam Clark in his commentary on Hebrews lists eight ways that this salvation offered by the gospel is greater than that that was offered to the Jews. 
Um, or another way of saying that is, these are kind of eight ways that this is the fulfillment of that Old Testament covenant. Uh, he uses the word in here, dispensation, when talking about different things. All that means is it's just an age. It's a, it's a time that God used certain methods um, and had a, a certain way of organizing his people. And so there's a Jewish dispensation, there's a Christian dispensation, and we're a part of that church age now. So that's what dispensation uh, means as I read these from, from Clark's commentary. He says, first, the Jewish dispensation was provided for the Jews alone, while the Christian dispensation was for all of mankind. The Jewish dispensation was full of significant types and ceremonies, but the Christian dispensation is the substance or grounding of all those ceremonies and types. The Jewish dispensation chiefly referred to the body and the outward state of man. They had washings, they had external cleansings, they had rituals they did to purify the outside of their body. But the Christian chiefly deals with the inward state of man, purifying the heart and soul and purging our conscience of dead works. The Jewish dispensation promised a temporal happiness, but the Christian dispensation promises spiritual fulfillment beyond anything we can ever know. The Jewish dispensation belonged chiefly in time. There was a set time for it. The Christian dispensation belongs to eternity. Once we're with Christ, we've entered into eternal life. The Jewish dispensation had its glory. It was a beautiful thing that God was doing, but it has its completion in the New Testament gospel. Then it's nothing compared to the exceeding glory of Christ and his message. Moses and the prophets were the administrator of the former dispensation, while Jesus Christ, the creator, governor, and savior of the world, is the administrator of the later. He's the chief among the gospel. So this is a great salvation, infinitely beyond the Jewish. Um, and it's, it's actually impossible to put how great, how much better the gospel is compared to the Jewish dispensation. It's you can't write it or words will fail us when we try to describe how much better it is and how amazing the gospel is, even though we do our best um, with our words. So it wasn't just the message, but that God delivered the message through Christ. And he confirmed it by signs and wonders and miracles. It wasn't left up to men alone, but God accomplishes his message delivered by Christ with supernatural acts that couldn't have been performed by men. From turning water into wine to Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the Lord is pleased to supernaturally accompany his message and affirm it for his people. So when one rejects the message, they're not only rejecting the words of God, but the works of him as well. The message and the miracles were done by the will of the Father. They weren't coerced by our own wills or our own wanting him to perform for us. He did these things out of his own good pleasure and will so that he could confirm his message to us. In Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, we're going to read it next. It says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come, about which we are speaking. But someone has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you think of him? Or a son of man that you are concerned about him? You've made him for a little while lower than angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You have put everything in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who is made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of his suffering death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So in verse 5, the Father is describing the glory and honor given to our Lord Jesus in connection to the world to come, which is the church age or the Christian disposition. Similar to chapter 1, where Jesus is compared to angels and is shown to be greater than them, but in this instance, in these verses, it's even bigger distinction than chapter 1. The angels are not even considered. The church age can't be under subjection of the angels. They can't be the messengers of it. 
It's only under Jesus that the church age comes into being. The world to come is the kingdom of the Son of Man, and the angels carry out the commands of Jesus alone. In Matthew 13, 36 through 43, we read, Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the seeds of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So just as the weeds are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. And they will throw them into weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sorry, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So even typing up everything you want to say, you still can't read very well. So there's the importance of that. So verse 6 and 7. The one here is David, and the quotation is Psalm 8, 4 through 6, which you read in our responsive reading. The author of Hebrews isn't unaware of who has said this. Uh, it's just a, a common form of quoting at that time to say somebody has written this somewhere. Uh, but it's done out of reverence for the original author of David. So Psalm 8 is written about mankind in the original state after creation prior to the fall. And the author of Hebrews is applying it to the humiliation of Christ by taking on flesh and lowering himself. Paul does the same thing in his epistle to the Corinthians. So it's not uncommon for the New Testament to take an Old Testament reference and then expand it to include Christ. To understand the expansion of Christ in Psalm 8, let's take some time to unpack uh, Psalm, the psalm. Um, there's reason to think that the psalm originally didn't have any foreseen connection to the Messiah in the mind of David, that it was solely about man in his original state before the fall. And the writer of Hebrews makes that expansion a connection to Christ. So unlike uh, like back around Christmas time when we were in Micah, for example, where there's clear messianic prophecies being fulfilled uh, in Micah's time with Jesus, there's not clear connection here until the writer of Hebrews makes that connection for us. So man originally before the fall was just a little lower than divinity. Being made in the image of God, he was crowned with glory and honor over all creation. Psalm 8, 4 through 6, which is what's quoted here in Hebrews 2, says, What is man that you think of him, and a son of man that you are concerned about him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You have him rule over the works of your hands. You have put everything under his feet. And you may have noticed a difference in terms between Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2. That he was made a little lower than angels is how Hebrews 2 lists it, and he was made a little lower than God is what Psalm 8 says. And if you're like me, that drew your attention, and for the next 10 minutes, that's what you're going to be thinking about, and then it's going to be time for communion, and you're going to go, oh, what happened to the rest of the sermon? So we're going to take a minute to kind of unpack that, because that's exactly what I did. I read that in Psalm 8 and thought, oh, I'm going to mark that, and I'm going to go back and figure out why there's a difference in terms, and I'm going to try to keep going on my, my thought process. And then 10 minutes into it, I had done nothing but think about that, so I decided I'd stop and go back and look at that. Um, so I spent some time looking into which translations use which term and why they may have done that. Uh, the short list I kind of found was that uh, each term was used in the history of the church. So the term angels is found in the Greek Septuagint, the Latin Vulgate, the Syriac, and then later Greek versions or translations by Aquila and uh, Symmachus is how I'm going to pronounce his name. I'm sure that's wrong. Theodosian and Jerome, who all worked on translations, uh, taking the Hebrew Bible and translating it into Greek, they used the term God. So it kind of seemed like it was up to the preference of the translator which term could be used. I did look at the Greek and all of it that goes into that, and I cannot explain to you why 
both those words work in that. The, the word is for divinity, um, but there's something with the adjectives and went way above my head. I don't even understand English very well, so me trying to understand Greek to explain to you was not going to happen. Uh, but the idea behind the psalm, regardless of which term is used, is that man in his original state is but a little lower than the divine, a little lower than the celestial state. So in Psalm 8, a little lower than God, seemed to fit the context of man being made in the image of God. And in Hebrews, with the comparison of Christ to angels from chapter 1, it fits to translate the term angels. But either translation will convey the same meaning as it applies to the status of men before the fall and to Jesus in his humbled station while on earth. So in the psalm, all things is clarified as meaning all the created things, all of creation. The oxen, the beasts of the fields, birds of the air, etc. But in expansion to Christ, the all is expanded as well to meaning full dominion over all of creation. Everything that had been exploited by sin, the glory and honor lost from the original state of man after the fall would be regained and perfected in Christ. So we see the culmination of the first two items of man's supremacy completed in Christ. He's made a little lower than the divine with the incarnation, with putting on of flesh, and all things are put under his dominion. And we see by tasting death for every man that Jesus has overcome the obstacle of fear and death that removed man from the garden, that removed the original glory that he had. As a Christ's dominion, it's one of ultimate supremacy. There's no aspect of reality that isn't under the rule of Christ. While we do not see this or experience it currently, we know that all things are under his subjection because of the preceding verses. So this is a sovereign rule that is gradually experienced in every age leading up to the second coming of Christ, when everything will be experientially put under his subjection. God is patient with the world and doesn't exert his power in utterly subjecting all immediately to himself. I think it has implications for how we are to live here and now, just as it did for the Hebrew Christians hearing it then. While we acknowledge that the world is run by evil regimes, I can't say that word either, evil regimes, no, still wrong, Um, or at best, broken sinners trying to fumble it all together, uh, we don't get a pass to say, well, that's secular society and we're the church, so we're going to huddle up in here and let them do their thing. Christ is sovereign ruler over them as well. If we view the world through a doom and gloom lens where it's all going to hell in a handbasket anyway. We can have a tendency to huddle up inside of our church building and just kind of weather the storm. But if all things have been put under subjection to him, even when we don't experience it, for, experience it firsthand, it enlivens us to work towards that end. Scripture tells us that the last enemy is death and that Christ reigns till then. Even with our experience of rebellious subjects running around, he still reigns and they are still his subjects nonetheless. And we should recognize this. I want to read a few other scriptures to you. The first is 2 Peter. It emphasizes the patient and gradual nature of our Lord's rule. 2 Peter 3, 3 through 9 says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the word, sorry, through which the word, world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. Beloved, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any would perish, but for all to come to repentance. 
Secondly, in the Corinthians, we have Paul making the same connection to Psalm 8 as the author of Hebrews does here. You'll notice that his reign doesn't begin when death is finally defeated, but he reigns the entire time. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 25-28, Paul writes, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are in subjection, it is evident that he has accepted who put all things in subjection to him. So when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. So Jesus took on flesh. He was made a little lower than the angels and was recognized with glory and honor as Messiah because of his redemptive death on the cross. And his death could be applied to the rest of mankind by the grace of God. Jesus, to redeem mankind, took on the penalty of sin that Adam laid on all of us. He took on the human nature and paid the penalty for sin. He became the federal headship for the human race, that we can have salvation and redemption through him. It was a custom in ancient times, uh, from what I was reading, for the guilty to be forced to drink a cup of poison for their punishment. So Jesus' tasting of death took the cup of each of us. We've all been accused, tried, found guilty, and condemned to death. But Christ took the cup from each of our hands and drank the poison cheerfully. Matthew 26, 38 through 39. It's written, Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And we know it was the will of the Father for Jesus to drink the cup of his wrath on our behalf. So as we move into the next part of our service, we move into communion this morning. The ordinance that we participate in weekly is in remembrance and celebration of what Christ has done on our behalf. Jesus took the cup of poison from our guilty hands and he replaced it with a cup of his redemptive blood. He traded the cups in our hands while they were just as guilty, just as dirty, just as sinful as they ever were. By the grace of God, he pried our fingers open. He took that cup of death away from us and he traded it with a cup of his redemptive blood. Matthew 26, 26 through 9, read, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit from the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So this morning, as we move into our time of communion, have you gripped onto that cup of poison, the cup of death that we all have to drink? Have you held onto it and thought, maybe I can pour it out on my own. Maybe I can just drink a little bit and I can survive it and get on with my day. But you can't. You can't pour it out. You can't drop it. You can't let it go. We're all found guilty and condemned by it and must drink from it unless we let Jesus pry our hands open, take that cup away from us and replace it with a cup of his blood. But if this morning you are, gripped onto that cup of death, communion's not going to make much sense for you because you're still holding on to the cup full of poison. So I would love this morning just to talk to you about the redemptive Savior who wants to take that cup away from you, wants to drink that poison on your behalf and replace it and fill it back with his blood of redemption. So Christian, when you're ready, come partake of your Savior in communion. For the non-Christian, I would love to just speak with you about that today.